0: You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening.
1: Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Skylight Books Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Jeffrey. Skylight Books is an independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. We're open every day from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. and require all customers to wear masks in the store regardless of vac- vaccination status. We also offer online shopping and curbside pickup through our website, skylightbooks.com. And You can check out our upcoming events on our Crowdcast page, crowdcast.io slash skylightbooks. <clears throat> it's my pleasure to be joined today by Lorne. I'm going to read that again. <laughs> <laughs> It took me so many times. I've done this a bunch. It took me so many times to realize it's not live and I can read things again after Mm -hmm. fucking up. And so you should take the same uh, privilege as well. Um,
0: I learned that late. I just did like a bunch of interviews because I felt like I needed to practice doing interviews. And it like takes so many times before I felt halfway decent about my audio. Yes, (laughs) yes. My vocal presence.
1: Yeah, the first like five times I did this I would fuck up the first sentence and then just have like a quiet panic attack and press on.
0: Yeah. Um
1: all right. uh, it's my pleasure to be joined today by Lauren euler to dis- to discuss her novel Fake Accounts, which is due out in paperback on February 8th. Lauren is a writer based in New York and Berlin. She was born and raised in West Virginia and her essays on books and culture have appeared in the New Yorker, the New York Times, the London Review of Books, Harper's, Book Form and elsewhere. How are you today, Lauren?
0: I'm great, how are you?
1: I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for being on here.
0: I'm so happy to be here. I'm coming all the way from rainy, dark Berlin, uh, and even just seeing the sun indirectly from your apartment is heartening for me.
1: Yeah, I like to make a, I like to complain about the sunshine a little bit in LA and how we need rain and weather variations to keep us sharp, but in January, I've completely given up that stance and now I'm all for it and, you know, softened by it.
0: You're a sellout.
1: Yeah, I'm a sellout. All right. You got something to read for us?
0: Yeah, I'm just going to read the very beginning of the book, which doesn't require me to explain anything. um, I hope Uh, if it does require me to explain something, uh, I'm in trouble. Great. 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 Consensus was the world was ending or would begin to end soon, if not by exponential environmental catastrophe, then by some combination of nuclear war, the American two-party system, patriarchy, white supremacy, gentrification, globalization, data breaches, and social media. People looked sad on the subway, in the bars. Decisions were questioned, opinions rearranged. The same grave epiphany was dragged around everywhere. We were transitioning from an only retrospectively easy past to an inarguably more difficult future. We were, it could no longer be denied, unstoppably bad. Although the death of any hope for humanity was surely decades in the making, the results of many intersecting systems described forbiddingly well It was only that short period between the election of a new president and his holding up a hand to swear to serve the people's interests that made clear what had happened, that we were too late. I didn't believe all this necessarily, though as the news got worse and more bizarre, I wavered. I've always been drawn to pragmatism, just not exactly a natural at it. As my brain said, calm down, my heart said, also weirdly calmly, a paradoxical comfort can be found in drama. It was and still is my official position, if you were to ask me at a party or something, that the popular turn to fatalism could be attributed to self-aggrandizement and an ignorance of history, history being characterized by the population's quickness to declare apocalypse finally imminent, despite its permanently delayed arrival. We don't want to die, but we also don't want to do anything challenging, such as what living requires. So the volubility with which certain doom was discussed made a tedious kind of sense. The end of the world would let us have our cake and eat it too. We would have no choice but to die, our potential conveniently unrealizable due to our own collapse. Until such time, the illusion that everything was totally pointless now was seductive particularly as a mantra you could take advantage of when it suited you and abandon when life actually started to feel alarming. I myself was soon using it to indulge some of my naughtier impulses, by which I mean that in the first hours of a morning in early January, when the sky was still dark and the government still inevitably hurtling, I decided to snoop through my boyfriend's phone while he was asleep. I'd never really had the urge to go through another person's things before. After a few disappointing experiences with high school boyfriends' instant message histories, I'd learned that poking around the byproducts of other people's thoughts usually yielded the mundane, the predictable, and the unattractive. Even with men I respected intellectually, I never found myself caring enough to breach their trust. Before Felix, my boyfriends exuded the wholesome, loving, deep down reliability of hot dads on television shows, despite being, as far as I knew, Not hot, nor dads, nor on television. Another way of putting it is that before Felix, I had good taste. With the exception of a water polo player I once showered with in college, a handful of celebrities, and anyone else I might find myself dazzled by in the future. I avoid obvious physical attractiveness because I believe it presages suffering. But over the year and a half we'd been together, Felix had revealed himself to be totally unrevealing, insisting over and over as I baited and nagged and implored him to tell me his innermost hopes, fears, and childhood-formed biases, either that there was nothing to tell, or, conflictingly, that he told me everything already, and it wasn't his fault if I didn't remember. It was humiliating and typical, and per the usual narrative, I assumed he was hiding something. Probably other women. I'll stop there.
1: All right, thank you. Such a fun opening. Um, I, I'm kind of curious because I think most people know you as a critic first, um, and you've written a lot of, you know, uh, about contemporary fiction. Was it always your plan to write fiction? Was that always something that you were um, keeping in sort of your back pocket as you were doing these reviews?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I wanted to write fiction and maybe specifically a novel, like when I was still in college. Uh, But the thing about novels is like, you have to come up with the idea yourself. But the thing about book reviews is people will just call you and be like, do you want to review this other thing? And it was sort of like, I just kind of, I don't know, it's, I, maybe annoying to be like, "Oh, I fell into it, but I fell into it because I was writing listicles. Uh, So it's a bit modern, the way that I did it. Um, and I think it was really useful for me because I, when I I was writing this listicle column for this British magazine and every week, for some reason, every week they wanted a top 10 list that had something to do with literature and books. So I had to like research all sorts of, um, different things every week. And it was really useful, uh, for thinking about like issues in contemporary literature and things that I, I liked and didn't like and what I felt a novel should be. Um, and Yeah also uh i feel i i feel like i'm i i'm 31 years old does that count as young that's young
1: yeah older people (laughs) will tell you it's young but it doesn't i'm 30 it doesn't feel young anymore I,
0: i feel like as for a writer it's quite young so i think this like a lot of re- reviewers of my novel and sort of people talking to me are like, Oh, well, you're a critic. Like you are a critic. And I'm like, I'm not anything. I just, just started. I'm a baby. I'm a tiny child. Um, so but I, try, you do, I, but
1: I think that just comes from having a long byline, you know, like there's a lot of it available. So even if you're young, there's like a body of work that exists and that makes it seem like a cemented identity to some people.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. But I, I don't, I think also, I wouldn't care to be called a critic. Obviously I'm a critic. I just, I just finished a piece of criticism today, but um, I think that there's this idea that criticism and, and fiction writing were, are inherently opposed and that one shouldn't do the other. And I just don't agree with that at all. So I sort of resist the implication that like, it's so, so strange to write a novel after you write criticism
1: yeah yeah and i i think like sort of like the reviews that you and also like patricia lockwood write they sort of don't feel like they're written from this like distant island where um you know the novel is this exotic thing that they're trying to interpret like you sort of feel like you're reviewing them as a writer um in a way um and then i hope you'll forgive me like assuming you're the narrator in this one instance but the narrator has this line about um you know, finding certain principles lacking in contemporary fiction. And I wondered if you would be willing to like spell those out or if that was sort of um, your motivation for like getting into fake accounts. Like re- uh, doing all these reviews and finding things lacking, being like, okay, well, I'm going to do, you know, the thing that's. Yeah.
0: yeah, absolutely. I think that I really wanted to read like my peers. I wanted to read a really contemporary novel about the way life was feeling to me. Um, as a sort of young person uh, uh, involving the internet, but also just kind of like involving all the sorts of petty, like embarrassing things that people don't like to put in their fiction. Um, And I really wanted to read like a kind of, not old fashioned novel, but kind of old fashioned, like a traditional conventional novel that was written from someone who clearly knew what they were talking about in terms of like what's going on out there right now, right? Um, And I think that there, are good reasons that novelists tend not to be as active online as other people um but I do think that there's like something there's often something missing from there like it doesn't it doesn't feel the texture doesn't feel like real to me sometimes Um, so that was one thing that was missing and also I was just reading a lot of novels where there was not a lot of attempt at sort of long-winded like description these really like sort of classic things like I'm like I want to know all of this sort of I want to I want to I wanted to see sort of like everything parsed I wanted to feel like emotions were being parsed I wanted to feel like characters were being sort of duly given their like like the analysis that they were due and and also you know that situations were sort of like described for page and pages like the way that a novel works right in my head in this sort of like really um you know stereotypical way which i understand you know there are lots of ways to subvert the novel that i think are quite good and and i like experimental writing and all this stuff but i really wanted to read like a long sentence about the internet, you know?
1: Yes. yes. Um, One of the blurbs on this book describes this as social media realism, which I think is like kind of a funny title. Um, And I think it is one of like my favorite aspects of this book is that it does induce the feeling of like a doom scroll and it is described extremely well and feels felt in the narrative where like you have some of those really long sentences that are, just sort of like spiraling down, and as like the narrator's like posture is you know um, sort of collapsing, and you feel it as a reader, you become like anxious with these like long sentences, um, but I wondered if like I mean you've kind of already answered it like did were you like nervous at all about treating like social media as your subject and like potentially like limiting your audience or being dismissed as like is this a worthy subject for fiction, or did you just sort of take that as? social media is a major part of my experience and therefore has to be a valuable subject.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the latter. I think like not just my experience, but like many, many people's experience. I think there's this sort of, I think people on social media tend to have this like self-hating like feel about how nobody cares about, or or maybe it's self-aggrandizing actually, like nobody cares about this stuff except for us, right? It's very unique. Um, And like, you know, this is kind of insidery the things that are going on but it's not it's it's not and also i think all fiction or most fiction tends to hone in home in on like a very small context that then can speak to broader human experiences right and i think what actually is challenging about writing a novel um that involves the internet or social media in particular is that actually it's not a small context at all. It's sort of overwhelming. And there are lots of different things that are going on. And one is like constantly aware of the possibilities, right? Like I think part of the reason why social media is so addictive is that you're always hoping for something to happen. Um, and so I think representing that is like the opposite of like something that only a few people care about. That's that's some, something that so many people care about. Um, and I'm from, I'm, as you said, I'm from West Virginia and I, I grew up there until I was 18 and moved away. But, um, people are always like, Oh, well you should write an novel about West Virginia. And I'm like, okay, well why is that not insular? You know, there are so few people who have ever been to West Virginia who care about West Virginia at all. Right. Um, and there are billions of people on the internet. Uh, so even if the way that I, and maybe you use the internet is particular to our, our class, um, it's it's still kind of like but all novels are sort of written about a particular class and it tends to be approximately our class anyway. So why is the internet the, the way our class uses the internet so unique?
1: Right, right.
0: Well right, that's a very long-winded answer.
1: No, no, no. Well, it's funny because I was thinking about this book. Like I recommend this book at the store a lot and with like no hesitation to people basically between the ages of like 18 and 40. And mm-hmm. and like the response, like I've had people who read a lot who really like it, writers who like it, and I've thought of the only person, and I hope you won't mind me saying this, the only person who had like reservations about it, and I was shocked by this. Um, you know, I would expect like my boomer dad to be like, in any he reads, he'd be like, who who wants to write about this stuff? Like, I don't <laughs> get why anyone's on the internet. This stuff is so stupid. So I would never give it to my dad. But the person who like had reservations about was actually like a Gen Z girl, uh, my friend's girlfriend, who said she found it like dated. And I was like, well, it's set five years ago. And she was like, well, but people are on Facebook on it. Like no one uses Facebook. And I found that kind of interesting um, to think about. And I sort of like argued. I was like, well, it's set five years ago. And, And rereading it, I didn't feel like it was dated at all. Um, but it was interesting to me like I wondered if your experience like people talking to you about it on um, along generational lines like what your experience of that has been because I have my own theories about why a zoomer would not like this book
0: yeah uh, I think I didn't it's not that I I don't want it to be dated but it's like I wanted to be like if you read a book from the 70s and they're like you know I don't know going to the phone booth or something like Nobody does that anymore. We don't have those anymore, but you still know what it is. Right. And actually, like, I just um, reviewed the new Jennifer Egan novel, which is coming out in April, and I reread A Visit from the Goon Squad, which is her um, Pulitzer Prize winning novel that came out in 2011. And it it sort of deals with all sorts of eras, but it, it felt extremely dated to me in the way that it was written. And not necessarily because it's talking, but it, but it has lots of sort of like 2000s references that I'm like, oh, ha, 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 like nobody cares about record company executives anymore. Um, and, and like, you know, the way people are dressed is very dated and things like that. But it, it was more like the style of writing was dated and that would mm. be my concern. Um, but of course, like I described how an iPhone works at the beginning of the text and i assume that that is going to be dated like if not parts of it parts of it are probably already dated i think there's like a there might be like a button or something that doesn't exist on my iphone anymore right um but i was just trying to be like particular to this historic like treat 2017 as like a historical moment so that it can be read like in that way
1: yeah and i I think one of the things that becomes a little bit tricky about sort of uh like describing the experience of an app as they change in these very subtle imperceptible ways over time like I find one of the most disorienting things is to go through old photos and see like old screenshots of like the Instagram Mm -hmm. interface from like 2014 and it looks sort of like quaint and ridiculous but at the same time like hasn't really changed that much and so I think like this is useful to see like you know there's the scene where like the interface the home screen of an iPhone that's just described in real detail and I think the fact of like that the iPhone screen home screen can change doesn't really you know take from its value.
0: Right and I think like it's the same way that it's I, I see it as analogous to like saying Donald Trump was president right like he's not president anymore you know right, right. Um, and actually people don't really talk about it that much anymore even though that was only what like a a year ago (laughs) (laughs) so so i think there's this like idea that technology is like somehow i don't i don't i don't i don't really know like it has a special status where like it's not part of history but it ages it it makes history go faster somehow
1: yeah
0: um and i don't really know what else to say about that but (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah Um, did you read all of your reviews for this or I'm curious cause like as a critic, I can imagine it being like, you know, or as someone who writes criticism, I don't want to pigeonhole you into that identity. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> um, as someone who writes criticism, I can imagine like either there's that there could be the impulse to want to defend your material, but also then to be critical of the criticism itself. And so I can imagine it's a interesting type of reading experience.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I read most of them, and then I got kind of bored of it, and so I don't really read them. I stopped, but, like, I read a lot of them, um, and I feel like it was good to do, not only as a critic, but I think as a novelist as well. I think, like, you – can, it's basically like a test. Like if someone is, is saying something negative about your book, you if you can if you agree with them, or if you are like, no, I did that for this reason, and and you you missed it, that feels quite good actually. Like right. if you if you can like stand up to your criticism, I think and prove that you have done something that you believe in. I think that that's a nice feeling. um But it's sort of like the whole. I feel very. I'm very sort of grateful and like lucky that I got so many reviews, um, and I got so many of them in part because i'm a critic and so all the other critics were like i'm gonna do the criticism no more and uh and <laughs> like it was really interesting because i got such a variety of them that it made me like reaffirm my belief that like book reviews do not matter and every time i write one it's a totally pointless <laughs> exercise <laughs> um uh but you know it was it was fine <laughs> yeah
1: um my one of my favorite things to do when new books come out is to go onto that bookmarks website that aggregates all the book reviews and they do this annoying thing where it's like you have to see all they never highlight the pants they never have like one of the mean reviews as like one of the featured ones you just have to expand it out um but i of course read the pants for this one because you know you're sort you have a reputation for not being afraid to write a harsh review But one thing that I found interesting in sort of the harsher reviews of your book was it seemed to me that a lot of the reviewers um, felt adversarial toward the narrator. And I think that's in part because the narrator, uh, I didn't really realize in the first time reading this book, but the second book, it's like kind of a second read. It's kind of like a novel of alienation, like almost every interaction with the narrator is adversarial, even when they're imagined. Um, And then there's that sense of an an imagined audience with like the ex-boyfriends and even the blogs judging her. And to me, it seemed like the negative reviews sort of missed that. They just were sort of absorbed into the narrator's like imagined audience and and, and, and taken into this conflict that's like really imaginary and stressful, but also kind of inconsequential. And I, I think that's like one of the strong parts of the book is when you spend a lot of time on the internet you carry around like these conflicts that don't actually exist um
0: yeah and you feel like everything is a possible you, everything is under threat all the time right like and you are going to be misinterpreted so she's constantly like analyzing everything and saying like no i don't mean this no i don't mean this and like going on and on and on about like like the implications of what she said because she's like afraid of being misunderstood i think which is a really sort of classic like theme uh for um uh, like a i don't know if this is a buildings from but like a a novel of young people right right um and uh i think like there there i hope that there are some moments that are noticeable where she sort of like has hope right there's like a bit of like oh like my friend is talking to me and maybe we can have like a re- not to say like a real connection or something like that And then the friend disappoints her somehow by, like, speaking in cliches, I think, or like using sort of like therapeutic language that is not actually designed to, like, have a conversation, but is designed to, like, get the person away from you. And she just gets, like, so disappointed in everyone um, as the book goes on. But I do see her her sort of experiments, like, later in the book. She moves to Berlin and, and... starts going on all of these online dates and um, lies about her personality on everyone. She gives everyone a different personality. And I, I really see that as like, she wants someone to figure it out. Like she wants someone to see the true like point of this whole exercise and like, be like, why are you, why are you being so weird? Why
1: are you you pretending to be a chorus? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think that there is an, an analogy to be made with like the, the my at least my experience as a writer which is that like whenever I approach a, a popular book that I'm like I hate that this book is so bad why is everybody like saying something so good about it like I feel really alienated like I write those sort of negative reviews or harsh reviews from a place of like oh, <laughs> I cannot be a part of the collective that is like that is like this <laughs> um and it's like a disappointing feeling and I think a lot of writers would say that they write in order to like find a connection somehow.
1: Yeah. uh, Speaking of the fake dates, I will say like the the first time I read this book, I was living in Providence, Rhode Island and had a sense of astrology and like knew my moon sign or whatever. But since moving to LA, I could you know my astrology literacy has been forced into uh, a completely new realm and I was able to read it and just be like oh yeah that is so Capricorn (laughs) in a way that didn't did not make sense to me in fall of 2019.
0: Yeah I worked at a feminist website where and the most popular articles like consistently were the horoscopes that we publish every day and so I had to learn a lot about the different I knew I always knew about my sign which is Leo and like a bit about my rising sign and my moon sign or whatever um but then I had to learn about all of them and the sort of like the sort of stories that go along with them and the sort of like ways that people use them to relate to each other and to like create an identity for themselves I found really interesting definitely um, but also <laughs> kind of it's just it was just very so very fun to write this like I was thinking of them as like horoscopes for people in yeah. the form of terrible dates.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, you've written a little bit about um, the anxiety, the like moral anxiety of a lot of contemporary novels um, like in Sally Rooney and Ben Lerner's novels about these narrators who are very concerned about living as a good person and, and also sort of presenting as a good person. And, and the novels even seem to be like a performance of that. Um, this novel, and I kind of had that in mind reading fake accounts, but this novel seems less concerned with, like, the performance of morality than it does, like, um, presenting as rational to me, Um, and I don't know if that rings true to you, and I appreciated how there wasn't this anxiety, like, the narrator sort of, like, knows she's bad, or at least is not interested in presenting as good, and I found that refreshing.
0: Thanks. Um, yeah, I think that's interesting. I think she is like concerned with rationality. And I think um, that's where a lot of this like, analytical sort of parsing comes from, right? Um, and the, the, the being a good person, I mean, obviously, she's not a good person, but I don't think that she's that bad. She the thing, she, her, her sort of like, manipulations are pretty low stakes. Yeah right and i I think too, if you read the novel as like a relationship novel, which you can like the t- the two characters the the narrator and then her boyfriend Felix, who for most of the book is um like not actually there, but she's thinking about their relationship with him a lot, like they're in constant sort of tension and like battle with each other, right, and like I think part of her fantasy of these like legitimate or or genuine connections is like a fantasy of reciprocity. And that goes both ways, right? Like you can, you can be like, you know, you can pay it forward. Someone does something good for you and you can be a good person in return and all that stuff. Or like someone you can enact revenge on someone who has betrayed you or lied to you or whatever. And I think that that is the kind of morality that she's operating with right, like it's not, it's not a performance of morality. It's like a, it's like a pragmatic understanding of, of morality.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the probably meanest thing she does, and it's telling, is, is like the childhood, like uh, reenacting Harriet the Spy. Oh yeah. And, and yeah. <laughs> But, you know, you can't hold it against an eight-year-old for, you know, making sure their mean opinions of their best friend are read.
0: (laughs) But it's sort of, um, like, really, it's interesting because I did a talk with uh, someone who said that, who said, like, oh, this shows us what kind of person she is because we are seeing her as a child, like, doing the same thing, right? And, like, I thought that was interesting because I didn't, I didn't really think of it that way. Like, it's like a particular unique behavior that she's engaging in. But actually, it is, it is sort of like she's been this way her whole life. It's not necessarily the Internet's fault, right? And I think mm. one of the things I wanted to convey is that the, our relationship to technology is not that technology is doing things to us. So we are, it's a tool that we use to do things that mm. mostly we're already doing anyway, anyway in yeah. some way or another.
1: Yeah. I mean, I sort of zeroed in on that. I used to manage a kid's bookstore for a long time and reading how dark Harriet the Spy is, it's sort of my beef these days. That kid lit isn't nearly dark enough and there's no real stakes or danger. Yeah, Um, It's a problem. You should do some kid lit reviews. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah i guess who who does the new york times publishes them
1: right? yeah actually um, Rivka Gauchin, galchin um mm-hmm. she actually wrote a great essay on kate d camillo's novels for new york review of books that i definitely oh, read. Yeah. and kate d camillo is writing dark kids literature so th- there is some good stuff out there for sure
0: but can you sell dark kids literature um is there a fear about it either like at the, the level fear. of the editor or at the level of the consumer um, yeah, there's
1: parental fears, like the main thing you run up against, like the kids are down for whatever. Um, I, at this bookstore I used to manage, um, we had a middle grade book club and I like had picked out like three or four contemporary ones. And, you know, I just didn't like them, didn't think the kids didn't even seem that into them. There were never any real stakes, like the monster was always like never really a threat. And so I remembered reading in like sixth grade this book where the red fern grows um Mm -hmm. which is just like sad Uh, we're hunting raccoons and my dogs die novel and I remember it being so so sad I didn't realize it was like I went to a Christian middle school so I should have picked up on this like it's like a hardcore Christian like middle grade novel and you know this this bookstore was in Park Slope I'm not sure Uh, (laughs) the the religiosity of it was going to be that down with the parents but there was this one girl in the book club who loved the book so much, and she was Jewish, which, which made it even better. Um, but she just said she kept reading the sad part over and over. And, and, I, and the sad part is good. Like, it moved me as a 28-year-old, and, and, you know, it, like, I, I stand by where the red right friend grows. And I remember just asking her, like, why did you like the sad part so much? And she was like, I don't know, but I did. And we just had this moment. I was like, yeah, that's it. (laughs) Um, But, you know, if there's anyone out there listening who was, like, writing middle-grade novels, like, make it sad. You know, the kids wanted to.
0: But do you think that there's an analogy with, like, um, literary fiction as well? Like, you said there's no stakes. I feel like in a lot of adult novels there's no stakes or the stakes are quickly dispensed so that you don't have to worry that like the author is going to like put you put you in an awkward situation right
1: yeah no no i i do agree with that i mean i feel like so much of what i read in contemporary fiction is just like an exercise in competence and and written out of moral anxiety um and is not daring um yeah. and that's and that's why I like, like joy williams new novel hero i don't know if you read that one it's so great because it's just like fearlessly misanthropic in a way that it feels like a young writer like would not be willing to do
0: right yeah and i think too like i don't know that my book has stakes but very purposely like it's about like the crisis of having no stakes and everybody is like you need to have stakes right now and there's there you're like searching around for some kind of like i guess the stakes are are more like metaphysical or like spiritual or but but like i did it was it was important to me that nothing this is spoiler it was it was important to me that nothing bad happened to anyone for their actions right and like not because they it wasn't a question of whether things are deserved or not it was just i wanted it to be really realistic and like if the events of my novel actually occurred, probably nothing bad would happen to the people. Um, And they would just like be a bit bummed for a while or like (laughs) get drunk for a little, you know? Um, And particularly writing at the beginning of 2017 when all of the rhetoric around the election was that like, this was a total catastrophe. The world was over like nothing was going to be the same. Your life, your beautiful life is about to be destroyed and all this stuff. And, and actually then you would go outside and it, it would feel like life and not this kind of like crashing, burning situation. Um, was an interesting dynamic that I wanted to Explore. Yes. I definitely,
1: yeah, I definitely had that feeling, like being at this bookstore in Park Slope and having these conversations day after day after day about like how terrible things were, but the class level being like high and basically being insulated from actual consequences, um, real or imagined, of Trump being elected, and that leading to this like kind of crazy feeling. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, and, and like, but
0: I think part of it is that those people in Park Slope like really thought that their lives were going to be destroyed because they needed like a stake, right? Like they needed yeah. something to feel and they were like, oh no, finally I get to participate in, in history and like in politics or whatever. And like something bad is going to happen to me. And it's like, no, nothing bad is going to happen to you. Um, speaking of my reviews, actually, I'd read one that was negative and in it, the reviewer took issue with my saying... There's a there's a scene where the narrator is at a yoga class in in Brooklyn in Clinton Hill. Um, the yoga studio is on Green Avenue. If anybody wants to follow along, uh, and and um, all the women at the yoga studio are like, "I'm going to the Women's March!" Like, "I'm going to the Women's March!" And the narrator's like, "What? the, f- Why are these people going to the Women's March? Like, the government this." Trump is not going to affect them really at all. Like their lives are not going to change. And actually in some cases, depending on how rich they are, they will probably, their lives will probably improve these people, but they're going to the women's march. And so because of this, she decides to go to the women's march too. And this reviewer of my book was like, how dare she say that women, these women's lives are not going to be affected by Trump. It's it's uh, like idiotic that she would say that. And I'm like, <laughs> it was true. It was true. Of course right. these rich people like, And, and somehow I think you like open yourself up to criticism if you're, if you are self-aware or honest enough to say that like you are, um, like the class that you're in or like you have the privilege that you have. Right. Um, and which is strange because for so long, there was this demand that you acknowledge your privilege, but you can't, you can only acknowledge it in the certain, in the, in the correct certain way, sort yeah, of prescribed yeah. cliches. Yeah. And you say, of course, like as a white woman, blah, blah, blah. You can't say like, oh yeah, well, that's not going to affect me. I think that it's a problem, but like, I have to be honest about my situation. Right. You know, you can't speak frankly. And I think maybe part of my the whole book is about like people not being able to speak frankly.
1: Yeah. 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 Cause of course it's possible, but then you have to maybe endure some consequences. And that seems like, you know, that drive to basically not just get, catch a bunch of shit feels like it can result in like same speak of a lot of people. And just, you know, sometimes it is just easier when you're sitting down to dinner with people to just like, you know, echo the the sentiment and not mm-hmm. get into it i i like getting into it but you know i understand <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah then you get into a fight and like someone always cries and it's a yeah. disaster <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> that's all right yeah you know i had experience at the dinner table growing up so so you know i, I felt mm-hmm. ready for it um did you happen to read that essay that was in the new yorker i can't remember her name who wrote it but it was against the trauma plot um, that came out recently. It
0: was parole Segal so yes, who wrote right. it. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't actually read it because I was applying for my visa, but I need to read it still. But
1: yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I mean, I guess we shouldn't talk about a, an essay you haven't read. But uh. <laughs> I
0: think I, I understand. I understand because the good the there are lots of things that are annoying about publishing on the internet, but one of the good things is that the headlines that they use are always incredibly descriptive. So like, I, I, so understand you're what, to talk about I understand gone, right? yeah. <laughs> what against the trauma plot means. Yeah, yeah. And I have seen many screenshots from the essay. So, <laughs> and, and maybe this is dangerous, but I'm confident that I'm able to qualify my statements In order to discuss an article that I have not read without, this is a challenge to myself, without overstepping any any rhetorical boundaries. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I give you credit for like still being, like setting yourself (laughs) up for conversation without having read the primary text. Interesting choice, but. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, why don't we instead pivot into your Sebald, uh review um, okay. your review of that biography because I found that really interesting because you go into that very open about not being a huge Zebald fan but him having this you know lasting legacy in over American literature and was was that like something on assignment or it, it's something I enjoy about your criticism in general, which is that you don't seem to enter the essay with your mind made up and the essay throughout it, you're sort of forming your opinion alongside the reader. I find it like fun to read.
0: Thank you. Um, yes. Yeah, so he, my editor at Harper's assigned me that um, I think in part just because I have this sort of like, Tendentious, not tendentious, but like a a vague relationship with Germany, one thing. And then I think, too, he was like, maybe you don't want to review the biography, but maybe you want to like talk about why Zebald has been so canonized, correctly assuming that I would find it a little bit, the the Zebald fandom a bit suspicious. Um, and I had just written another article for another magazine um, where the editor tried to insert like a comparison to Zaybald that was like pretty inappropriate. Um, and I was like, they're always trying to do this. They're always trying to talk about, Zab- everyone's always trying to talk about Zebald. and it's like Zaybald is not relevant. Uh, we're talking about, there are other people that you can compare these, you know, these authors to. Uh, and, and so I was like, okay, I will do that, but I really didn't want to write the sort of, like, typical, like, survey of the life and work, and what is his, you know, legacy, and what does his influence say about contemporary literature? I didn't really want to do that, Um, because there, but also, it was a problem, because so, there's so much written about Zabel, right, and still, people kind of think that he's, like, a, like, a little discovery, like, they think, like, oh, this is a, a sad European author that, like, most people don't know. And actually, as I learned when I was reading the biography, he was, like, quite – he became quite famous in the last few years of his life uh, and was, like, pretty, you know, as successful as someone who writes that kind of book can be, which is to right. say, like, it's a long, like, quite difficult, like, kind of experimental, kind of – sorry, boring uh, <laughs> like novel about um, – uh memory and destruction and and history. So so yeah, so 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 he's he was he was quite popular, but I think everybody approaches him being like, it's my special, my special guy, which is totally understandable. And that's like a relationship that we have with literature that's very good. Um but I think he encourages a lot of posturing, Mm -hmm. like a lot of like a lot of like melodrama, about a lot of like high flown kind of pseudo lyricism and I just like really didn't want to write anything like that um so I tried the point of I was like I'm going to like give him a fair shot I'd only read one of his novels and I was like okay I'm gonna really try and see (laughs) what the Zayvon thing is all about um and I sort of you know it wasn't it wasn't a takedown or anything right like it was not it was not uh but you have to be able to say you don't like Zayworld if you don't like yeah, it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Is there anyone else who's like uh, kind of rarefied or canonized to you? Kind of are like fuck that person. I'm not into it.
0: Oh, I don't know. I would have to think about it. Um, probably, probably. I just don't really.
1: It's not have always it in easy mind. to keep an inventory of like things you hate. You know, <laughs> yeah. Like, they just yeah. slide off.
0: Yeah. I know. There's just so many.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Um, did you read Ben Lerner's uh, review of the same biography that was in New York Review Books?
0: I did. And I thought his emphasis on the use of. So Ben Lerner's review focused on like the. The. Zebald's like playing with fact and fiction yeah. and like often lying about kind of inappropriate things um, in his life. But also, I think in. I found that the sort of criticism of the use of real things in the fiction was like a bit odd because my understanding of all fiction is that it's basically like transposed from life in some way or another and the 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 effect of reading the the zebald effect is that you feel like it's actually zebald and that it's all true Mm. and so that's like uncomfortable but also ben lerner writes novels that You feel like it's been learner and it's all true even though some of it is made up right like that is what this whole auto fiction boom is about like the 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 reality effect is like a stylistic formal effect not um like in in the content or the descriptions and so i thought it was interesting so for I th- him for him in particular, to focus on that because he's often spoken of in the same breath as zebald and and I am a big fan of Ben Lerner, so I'm not criticizing him. I just like wish that I could ask him why he was focused on that as opposed to something else
1: yeah, I mean that just seems like to me his fixation these days like i I avoided the Topeka school just because of how I heard it ended um and it, but I really like ten o four and I really like leaving the Atocha station, but it seemed to me that Ben Lerner is like now very much grappling with like the ethics of fiction. And it seems he's like tortured by it a little bit.
0: Yeah. And I think it's like, we've been doing this for hundreds of years, not that many hundreds of years, but we've been writing novels for hundreds of years and the fictionality of them is, (laughs) has always been like actually pretty steady. um, If you read anything about the history of the novel. So I don't, I think all these like new questions about like the ethics of fiction writing are like part I don't want to give away all my material but like partially about social media like the the like the internet and like what the internet makes available and the way that you can like mine the internet for content for your work if you wanted to do that right. and that the 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 ethics and also the legality of doing that are like highly murky Um, and if I, when I worked at a website, like even just little things like what images are you allowed to use? What images are you allowed to publish on your website? Lots of different like parameters, lots of different rules about that. And so, and like, are you allowed to quote someone's tweet and then give you the quote? Yes. Technically legally you're allowed to quote anything that is used on social media. You can put any picture that is on social media in a blog post in a newspaper article if you want to. But the interesting question is should you, right? And then right. when you're talking about fiction, it becomes more interesting because nobody necessarily has to know right. that you've taken it um, unless you know, the person that you've taken it from sees it, which is in part this bad art friend kidney donation story that was right. published in the New York Times Magazine, whenever that was. The whole drama about that um, gets at some of these issues.
1: See, I, I kind of interpret the obsession with these ethics now as, I'm smiling because I don't know that I should say it, but um, as like almost a spiritual bankruptcy of the moment. <laughs> Because I think like, I don't know, you know, I'm going to sound like such a stan, which I am, but um, like Joy Williams talks about writing to serve not herself or others, but that dark elemental grace that knows us. And like, that's Mm -hmm. not a posture for her. Like, I really think, I know that she believes that her writing is in service of something that's not exactly on the human plane. Um, And I think a lot of people now writing, it's they can't imagine the writing serving something other than like social or political ends and that and because they're working within that framework you know the consequences therein are are just um paralyzing to them whereas like i think like a lot of writers in the past were sort of like fuck everyone this is for something else and they wouldn't necessarily name it but you know, they weren't afraid to use people because they felt there was this value outside of their historical moment and even the social plane itself.
0: Right. And I think that there's also this sort of, like, um, feeling, like, it's, like, now if you make someone feel bad, you have, like, done something horrible when actually, like, if, if if you tell me a story and I... Translate that story into something in my next novel, say, and I don't make it like I don't even make you identifiable, which is like maybe would be fine even if I made you identifiable. Well, as I say, I like make you something completely different, um, and I just like use a sort of bizarre story that you tell me or gossip that you tell me, like maybe you will feel bad, but like it causes you no harm. The one, and I mean, this you know, the, the one like instance where I am like, oh yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't feel comfortable stealing things. Is like, if another writer tells me something, in which case I assume that they are going to want to use it. <laughs> yeah. And then you're like, oh, I just told, stole your, your material. And it's so unique and good that like, you won't be able to write about it, even though actually you would be able to write about it. But there is like a protectiveness about like your. I mean, I just said earlier where I was like, I don't want to give away all my ideas that I'm like writing about auto fiction or whatever. But, but yeah, I think I also am not that protective about my um, details. Like when I'm talking to people, like I want to con- like make connections with people and like tell like people things about myself. Um, not publicly, but like my friends. And and I don't think that I would be upset about like people using them in novels, unless as I said, I would want to use them in a novel. I can see people being upset if they are portrayed negatively. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but with fiction, there's always like plausible deniability, which is like, oh yeah, well, I only, I took your good qualities, but the bad qualities Are fictional, they come from someone else,
1: yeah. Yeah, I remember my favorite experience personally with all this stuff. Is I remember doing something using something my cousin had told me very directly that I wasn't sure that he would want other people to know and sent it to him. And I was like, Hey, Alex, like you know, think you'll like this, but like I I can change the name, it doesn't have to be my cousin Alex in the story. He was like, No, Mikey, you're like, Keep me in there, I like it. Like, (laughs) he was just honored, Um, yeah, yeah. So I think, and I, cause I think he like had a sense that like this, it doesn't really matter, you know, that his like weird gambling spreadsheet is in a short story now. Well, uh, otherwise,
0: how would you know? I mean, we need to, if you think of yourself as like a weird, bad reporter, like you need to know what's the best way to make something realistic is to in a, fic, in a piece of fiction is to like use something that actually happened. Um, and when I'm writing criticism I'm always like worried about saying oh this scene is really unrealistic because it's I'm always like oh they're gonna be like oh yeah well that really happened to me so (laughs) you can't really say that
1: right right um all right we're going a little over time here but um you know my last like uh kind of throwaway question is you know you've written about uh how sad girls in Europe is like one of your favorite genres um, and I wonder, but I wondered if you had any LA-specific novels that uh, that are favorites of yours. Since we're in LA bookstore, and
0: oh my god, I don't know any. I'm I've, now you're saying that I'm like, have I ever read a novel set in LA?
1: Play it as it lays. I mean. Oh yeah. Okay, that's yeah, what yeah. I read. That
0: I wrote a paper about that in my freshman year of college. So play it as it lays it's good, but I want it to be like a better. I'm going to Google LA novels and then yeah. tell you which ones I've read or Los Angeles novels. Less than Eve zero. Babb- uh, Eve
1: oh, Babbitts. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I don't like. I don't really like Eve Babbitts. I don't really like less than zero. I haven't
0: really read Eve Babbitts, and I read less than zero at zero ago. Dave the
1: Locust.
0: Oh yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. That's a good one. Let's see, in a lonely place. That's Never a great really. one. Oh, it's a great novel and the movie is amazing you've got to see the movie i'll check it out um what else is in here inherent vice haven't read it um yeah i'm really avoiding la it seems in my reading i mostly read i read a lot of books set in europe yeah. because i i fetishize european <laughs> life and and bohemian expats and things
1: (laughs) what uh what are you reading right now
0: what am I reading right now I'm reading the new unreleased Elif Batuman novel either or and I'm reading a bunch of like little articles and things for this I'm writing a book of essays that I'm researching frantically so awesome yeah
1: all right. Well, thank you for taking the time, Lauren. Uh, today's guest was Lauren Euler, and we were discussing her novel fake accounts. You can order your copy of the book or any of the others mentioned on today's podcast at skylightbooks.com, or so or can buy and pick them up in the store. Thanks, Lauren.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com, and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.